Welcome to Bipolar Inquiry, drafting and crafting bipolar consciousness since 2016 by philosophizing, relanguaging, and harvesting mania's special messages, meaning visions, extraordinary experiences, ideas, insights, superpowers, possibilities, synchronicity, and parallel worlds. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information discussed on the show is not medical advice. Now, let's get started with this episode. some interesting insights lately. I don't know if they're insights, but I feel like I'm in a slightly superimposed state where I can see many possible futures for myself. And that's happened before. But I feel slowed down in that if I see a certain possibility and it's kind of scary, I don't necessarily get scared. And in that way, it seems my brain keeps calculating different possibilities. And then it also goes back into past experiences and past superpositions and and ways that it feels like I've quantum jumped to different realities and how the process of so-called psychosis is trying to resolve some of those and I've been in the position of nearly taking my life a couple of times but not wanting to and managing to keep my body safe from that possible future in which I don't exist. Yet in talking about that, I feel like if I go back to certain events in my past, that that's where the split was. There were several futures where I didn't exist. And I sort of had to transport my way out of there somehow and go to a different reality where I existed and I wandered there for a while and I went to the USA and then when I came back I realized I was in a reality where I didn't necessarily exist even though it seemed like I did to me and when that trajectory wore itself out and I was close to ending my life, I was diagnosed with a mental illness to sort of explain away all the weirdness. And I'm wondering to myself, if I almost need the mental illness right now Because if weird stuff happens, 
I'll just be told, oh, that was your mental illness and medicated. And it could be the same thing. It could be that I understand it's a bit of a different process, but that's not the understanding of society. So I can still go about the process of accepting the treatment that sort of allows me to rematerialize or reconnect with my body because it's almost like consciousness becomes disembodied and when that happens it can appear to die in other people's realities in my reality it becomes another episode of mental illness which is sort of like dying several times throughout life instead of really being concentrated in one's ego self when one gets to places beyond the ego self one might leave the body or it could even be that could even be true that for each of us that when some kind of trajectory of our life ended we get some sort of medical problem to explain it away it's really complex And this is the first time that I feel I've been able to really look at this without immediately acting and then rushing towards a scary trajectory that puts me into a state of psychosis where it's too confusing. And then people come and sort of rescue my body medicate me to slow my brain down so then consciousness doesn't sort of go flying off into another dimension where I might continue to exist I don't know but I don't necessarily exist with the people that I care about now in saying that I can use the medications to sort of modulate consciousness myself instead of getting help from the medical system. I have a slight sense that this could get me in trouble in that I might feel like I'm handling things like I do. I feel not great, but I feel strong. And I feel like that trajectory of doing it that way might lead to the story of oh she seemed fine we never suspected anything and then I'm found not living in that reality at least and that's the thing it's more a matter of I kind of want to stay here with the people that I care about I don't 
want to go off into some other dimension. And I'm not saying that's necessarily true, but... Or it feels like since I no longer necessarily buy into the mental illness trajectory to keep me here in my body, something else might happen where maybe there's some kind of accident and my memory's erased and I have to relearn who the people I love are. And I'm supposed to go to California and I feel like stuff has come up from my past that might almost feel like I'm running away from that to go to California when I was planning to go already. So I'm wondering if the level of consciousness will be okay to go to California by the time that comes or or if it'll be like escaping. I also feel like I could get harmed or killed on the way to California. Something to bring me back to my family again. And I feel like I'm coming back. It's not like I'm going away forever, I'm just going away for a couple of months. And I'll be back. Part of me feels like in order for me to stay with them in the same reality, they have to continue to see me as mentally ill. So things will keep happening to make it seem like I'm mentally ill. And that could be one of the reasons why usually when I have a so-called relapse of psychosis, I'm actually quite engaged. I'm doing a lot of different things, involved in a lot of different things. It's like consciousness has expanded to a certain point and hits the roof. And then when it hits the roof, it just flies back down to the lowest level again. And I feel like this time, the level of consciousness I experience perhaps hit the roof in terms of reality as opposed to just inner stuff. What I've unfolded as my life, apparently, getting a good position in peer support work, it's sort of the height of sort of recovery plus career and everything in, in the mental illness paradigm. And having created that in reality, I decided, okay, it's time to take that apart because I don't resonate with this paradigm. And maybe I need to resonate with it a little bit in terms of needing some of the services a little bit still but I just don't want to immerse myself in that paradigm where people are seen that way. Yet I struggle a bit because it's, it's, it causes a lot more suffering, but at the same time, I don't know, it's, it's confusing. I don't, I don't understand. And this is where sometimes I get 
stuck is what to do because I don't know what's right and what's good. So even to say that psychiatry is fully bad is doesn't feel congruent because in a way me being labeled with a mental illness has saved me in a way because I feel like otherwise I could have been dead by now. Because the mental illness thing is the only way people understand how people can exist in a quantum state. It's really strange. I don't know. I'm not sure. I guess part of it is if a person goes into a quantum state and it's confusing, because it is, and they get afraid and then they go along that line of fear, they're going to be running away from their self and then be caught and medicated. So part of it is not being afraid of that state and understanding that it's a death but life continues. And people that go into those states have to die in a way so others can continue to live. So a person who gets medicated by psychiatry, or they're sort of shut up from all the stuff they can see and might say otherwise. But this allows them to reintegrate back into society and nothing has to change. So it's one thing for scientists, for physicists to talk about quantum jumping and quantum states, but it's another thing for a person who has actually jumped through multiple realities and could actually come back and tell the stories of it and be like, oh, you're actually dead in a different reality and blah, blah, blah. People would just be like, what are you talking about? I need to go get some better cough candies. I also feel there's an alternate reality where I wake up from a coma. Maybe I shouldn't talk about this stuff because it might mess up the future possible collapse of those wave functions. I don't know. Who cares? It seems like I'm doomed and not doomed either way. Maybe the less afraid I am of being doomed, the less doomed I am. It seems like the most difficult thing is to stay embodied. And I might have said that before. I might need to take up something physical and stop all this mentalization. Not all of it, but it might be good to talk to people more. It also feels like it's time to move towards the past that I was running away from. The past that I escaped from. And why did I escape? 
I feel confused, but not. I feel like when something enters my mind, it makes sense. But it sort of contradicts with something else that enters my mind next. So it's confusing. I feel like life operates based on synchronicity. And that's sort of quantum and it's, it's life. It's the processor and the process of life. Most of us operate in the realm of thought. And there's something going on with the ability for us to communicate with each other. It seems this quantum process wants to communicate. But do others want to see quantumly? almost like the rest of the reality is sort of a machine. And in a way, people that are diagnosed with a mental illness are the people who are scapegoats because if they shared their experience, then it would sort of make reality as we know it fall apart. I was starting to watch a video on YouTube called The Mechanics of Consciousness or Consciousness Mechanics and it was interesting because it actually was talking about the Planck length and how it's sort of like frames per second which is something I said the other day usually when I say something I find the evidence for it later versus just looking at something and hearing it and believing it in terms of what others are saying. But they were showing this Planck sphere thing. And they were showing how the Planck length is, there's a space, and that's the smallest space. And I was actually thinking that the space between two photons or whatever they are, is actually the space between the mind and the brain. And I have no idea if that's true. But then I was sort of thinking about how in the space is consciousness. So there's a level of consciousness, and then there's a space, which is the gap, the action potential that the mind has on the brain. It, and I was thinking about it in terms of how Dr. Daniel Siegel says the mind uses the brain to create itself. So depending on one's level of consciousness, the mind unfolds that reality in the brain. So it's not just mind and brain, it's the level of consciousness. And with bipolar, one can go up and down the levels of consciousness quite rapidly and then that unfolds different realities for that consciousness as opposed to being stable in one level of consciousness which is perceived as one's ego self. And then some of that got me thinking about how there's movies about in the future everyone will be very drone-like and if there are any people that are actually alive they have to conform and pretend because if they step out of line they'll be obvious that they're not one of the drones and then they'll turn them into the drone or something. And I almost feel like that now. I almost feel like 
even though I was critical of some of the things Tom Wooten was saying about acting in order in order to appease reality in a way I can see the logic of that now because I'm feeling low though I know if I go around talking about this lowness people will perceive me as not doing well and then that'll be projected onto me and then it'll just funnel me closer to being drugged again so in order to not get more drugged, not get more punished for being in different states of consciousness and not appearing as this continuous ego version of me, I have to pretend in a way. It feels like pretending. And maybe there's a way to not feel like it's pretending. I haven't figured that out. Because again, I don't want to remain in this victim mentality. I've experienced a lot of suffering. Whether it's past karma, collective past, collective consciousness. I know that I can take it. And I have because I was talking about before how Lately, it's been more of this physical sensation that I've been having in the last month. There's been some thought stuff, but it's not like this extreme physical, say, anxiety that turns into this extreme fear thought, and then that leads me to feel like I have to take some kind of action towards that fear. It's more, say, constant so-called anxiety, kind of low, but no thought forms associated with it, really. And so now I feel like some of the thought forms are coming out because it's gone to a place in consciousness where I feel shame. So some of that is coming up. But it's coming up more in terms of, well, how do I want to move forward with this? And I could feel like, oh, the first thing that comes to mind, I'll just go with that. But I'm just waiting for it to really unfold for me. Because if I can't turn it into some kind of good, then it's possible that consciousness will decide, well, there's no point in going on. Um, and I do want to stay here with my family and my friends. Feels like it's one thing to share all this stuff about brain growth and, and it's another thing to share what makes the brain shrink in fear to the point where some brains do end their own life. And I've experienced that in, in so-called psychosis, but I've also experienced that in actual life. And I don't want other people to have to experience that. I 
really don't know. I have no idea. I remember when things first happened, I really didn't know. So I decided to run away and then I was diagnosed with a mental illness. And in a way, it, it's bought me time. Time to build a good life where I feel connected and supported because I didn't feel that then. I didn't feel like I had the strength. So maybe it's now that I do, I don't know. I don't know. A friend of mine just texted me a quote and it said, of all the people on the planet you talk to yourself the most, make sure you're saying the right things. I was watching this thing online called Vaccines Revealed and there was an interview with Dr. Kelly Brogan and at first she was talking about vaccines but then she was talking about psychiatry because she is a psychiatrist but she actually works with women and helps them taper off medication really she doesn't put people on medication and she was talking about her journey towards discovering iatrogenic illness where a person is suffering symptoms because of treatment from a doctor. She gave the example of people who go on antidepressants because they're depressed, maybe just mildly depressed, and then when they come off the medications they experience extreme anxiety and all these other symptoms that they never had before. So she says that's actually iatrogenic illness because they never had that before they went on the drug and it creates an imbalance in the system so when the drug is withdrawn then people have all these symptoms. I feel that's what happened to me in the psych ward in April when I was put on antipsychotics it made me worse. I didn't have that before. So I just appreciated that she's a psychiatrist who discovered that putting something on something can actually make it worse long term. And she said it's only generally good to be on things short term. She also talked about the devolution of our species. And I started to write an email to her. But again, I didn't send it. So back to the plank length. I feel like the level of consciousness in a way is like the action potential in the space. So it's a higher energy vibration, even though the length might be the same. It's sort of a higher energy. And so consciousness So this action potential of consciousness is allowed is what allows the mind to move through the brain. And then the brain creates this world that we're in. And the mind is trying to use the brain to create itself. So it depends on our level of consciousness. And the movement of consciousness 
is what allows us to unfold the mind and this is also involved in perception and seeing what's already there or making something else salient in the perceptual field and when we can see certain things consciousness knows we can see it and perhaps when we become able to not fear what we see then we can integrate it and the video talked about symbols and it talked about emotions as non-physical symbols but I was thinking about how when emotions arise in us they become physical symbols because we actually embody symbolizing that emotion and it could be read on our face or our body language when people observe us and when people observe us and read us in this way they're actually giving that feedback to consciousness and then consciousness gets the feedback of how does this person's perception respond to that emotion even if we are not aware of it consciously the quantum computer is calculating everything and making adjustments based on that so people that get a visionary consciousness sometimes actually have to become immobile to allow this other movement to happen so their body's not moving in space while consciousness is moving in space around them we're all symbols of the Gaia sphere communicating with each other and Gaia knows through us if we're looking at nature if we're looking with unconditional love what we're doing what we're looking at and when we come to this realization we might feel like there's a conspiracy against us it's just computation there's a computation beyond our brain that is aware of everything because consciousness is awareness itself and everything is imbued with consciousness and I feel like when a person goes into manic consciousness that's why one is so sensitive to reading situations and some can be f feeling scary because you can just look at something and know what it's all about and the trouble is that at the prevailing level of consciousness most things aren't about good and empowerment and uplifting others it's about control, it's about progress, it's about harming other people I'm wondering if a supposed individual gets to that state if they can read situations and communicate something that is helpful and in that vaccines revealed program there's a man named Sayer G and he talked about how viruses are really important and this isn't something I thought about before or heard about but he talked about how viruses actually were involved with the growth of the brain how it's actually a lot of viral DNA and viruses are a way for DNA to exchange between species and between individuals and they can get into germ lines and then affect the next generation and things like that and and then there was a lady named Stephanie Seneff, PhD, and she was talking about how
she learned that the flu is important because it goes into the muscles and gets the muscles to release sulfate and then the sulfate goes into the blood and the sulfate is something that rescues the blood in a way I don't know she didn't elaborate on that so the flu virus carries the sulfate from the muscles into the blood as a way to remedy the blood so the flu is actually helpful and I've been sick with maybe a flu-like thing for maybe two days feels like it'll be gone tomorrow never lasts very long but it made me realize that it's probably doing something good and I'm one to not really take anything for any kind of physical ailment I actually feel like it's healthy to have a really good fever every now and then and I rarely get sick and when I do I it doesn't make me not able to function and then I was thinking about then how these viruses in a way created the brain co-created the brain and then eventually the brain was to the point where we had language so these physical viral bits actually contributed to us being able to communicate with each other in this way yet now so many people are being vaccinated and given antibiotics and things so viruses and bacteria which make up a lot of our DNA most of it are being destroyed and then by destroying those things children are being born and then acquire not being able to acquire language so it's interesting how I feel like language is a virus we use it against ourselves and I don't I didn't mean like language is actually a physical virus it's just virus like in that it infects us yet it could be a virus in a way because our brain is partly made up of viral DNA in order to make the brain and then we we're able to acquire these language viruses and now we're in this big war against germs and viruses and bacteria and we're creating all these human beings that are not able to acquire language or language viruses so maybe they have a different language they have a different mode of communication but not spoken word so much and I was saying how the spoken word we use it against each other and ourselves and it creates all this chaos in the world so by vaccinating and killing germs and killing bacteria the very things that made our brain into what it is so it can speak and so it can communicate in these ways we're destroying our brains and by destroying our brains we're not able to speak so we've gotten to this point where we're so smart that we can create things like vaccines yet when we utilize them we're no longer smart in the next generation and people can still be intelligent in many different ways it's just interesting that we're erasing this apparent linguistic intelligence and the linguistic intelligence 
is probably being erased by necessity because it's being used in the wrong way. Language is a gift. It was meant to unite us and get us to share and celebrate and, and sing. And we use it against ourselves internally. We use it against each other when we look around without saying it out loud. We use it to divide each other. And now we've gotten to this point where kids are being born divided in that they can't communicate. So we're a generation who apparently can communicate but we're divided because of how we use language. And then we're creating children that can't use language so they're divided from us in terms of communication. And the only way they can communicate with us, the only thing they really understand is unconditional love. Yet if we were able to just use our language for unconditional love, we wouldn't have created all this mess in the first place. We wouldn't have to create a generation of children who have to suffer in this way. And then I realized that these kids are likely not going to procreate. And when the autism rate gets to one out of two children, people will be questioning procreation. So actually vaccines and other things related to that in terms of antibiotics and all these things that we're trying to kill the diseases that don't kill us but by that we're killing our brain because these diseases that don't kill us actually make us stronger there are things to immunize us and I actually feel like these diseases actually give us some of the DNA to make our brains stronger too and make our perception stronger and make us smarter and make us immune to some of these mind viruses that we're given. So we're given a mind virus of go vaccinate your children and then it ruins some of them. And maybe we believe that virus because we were vaccinated and we were fine, but perhaps it's worse in the second generation of this. And so what happens is these kids that get vaccinated, it actually vaccinates them against being able to learn and see properly and then we look at our kids and we think something's wrong with them when it's something that we did to them what I'm saying is that it seems like more and more of these things are actually to immunize us against having the right form of the bacteria or virus that will actually probably continue to strengthen and create our brain and make us immune to some of these programs that we're being fed consciously, subconsciously, all these things that we believe. They're viruses and our brains have probably been designed to accept those programs. And if we were allowed to have the diseases that strengthened our immune system, strengthened our bodies, probably strengthen our minds, we would probably be naturally more immune to some of these programs. So if we can believe that injecting foreign DNA into our, our, our veins and, and fetal human tissue into our veins is good for us, we're going to believe just about anything. So it's almost a test of, of intelligence in a way. And then when we accept the test and fail, we can no longer be intelligent. And then, since we're no longer intelligent, we're not able to produce intelligent children. 
which will eventually stop us from procreating and then maybe the earth will be able to restore itself. So we're doing it to ourselves on purpose or not, I don't know. And it's to edit out language and and maybe it needs to be edited out, but it's sad that it's but it's sad that the brunt of it has to be born by children. But you know, even two generations ago, you could say, "Look at we're, look at what we're doing to the children." And two generations later, look at what we're doing to the children. It's, it's the same thing. It's just something different. It's just a different manifestation of the same thing, which is unconditional love and not understanding things for ourselves about how our bodies work, how our brains work, how reality works, accepting authority. Well, the doctors say it's good. Well, it must be good then. And I feel like the vaccines, in a way, if they put the bad version of the virus in us, that's going to create our brain in a different way that we're going to accept whatever programming is given to us. And I'm not saying this is a conspiracy. It's just something that could be happening by virtue of the fact that we're all sleeping. And even in terms of the gut bacteria, if we wipe those out with antibiotics, and we try and eat food, the food's not going to be converted into our brain cells properly. It's going to be converted into the wrong molecules, which maybe attack the brain. It's just about disconnection. It's about miscommunication. I forgot to say that editing that video of me reading, that long-ass document was so annoying. It was, like, painful. I don't think I ever want to read off something again. That would screw up words a lot and then have to edit and then ugh too much pre-thought out stuff is actually ugh. so it seems language is a virus that needs certain viral DNA in order to properly take hold in the human brain and so some brains are being disrupted and they can't pick up language. They can't communicate. Consciousness cannot be embodied. It can't be channeled into the body. So there's all these bodies being born, but the consciousness in the bodies is, is different. So I feel like there's a genome, but there's also a memone. There's certain genes that produce certain memes. I can't remember if I said, but I actually ordered the medical alert ID bracelet thing for when I go to California. And I'm seeing now after the fact that I think that was a good idea. Because if something happens, it'll make people understand what's going on in terms of how they can understand it. And they'll give me the appropriate help even if it means I wake up from a coma or get electroshock, whatever ritual they need to perform to be a placebo for me to rematerialize in this reality is fine with me. I'll show you a picture. I know I posted a spoof one before, but this is the real thing.
I'm wondering if I should get a tattoo. I don't actually want one, but I might get one anyway. And when I get into fear consciousness, I feel like, oh, if I get a tattoo, that means it's an identifying mark on my body. feel afraid. It's just sort of a, a thought that would be equated with fear. I feel like I would get a fly tattoo and I wanted to get one. When I was in the psych ward in April, I was thinking about it. Just to acknowledge the fly whisperer video that I did, which is a way of acknowledging that I respect all creatures, even the lowly housefly. I remember one time feeling like like the coconut that the flies were on was actually going to be turned into a head and I was drinking the blood out of the head. It was really weird and I'm thinking to myself, that's not what it was. It almost feels like past realities that went by could be changed and misconstrued to create some kind of interesting story for the rest of the world. I think that happens to people. Like something kind of unbelievable happens and then all of a sudden they're in jail and it's like, I didn't even do this. But just because we want some good story in life. And so I'm wondering about this whole transcending the mental health system thing and if it's even worth it or maybe it'll happen at some point. I just feel like most people don't think they can transcend it. It's kind of like the four minute mile. It wasn't until somebody ran the four minute mile that all of a sudden a bunch of people were able to. And before that it wasn't believed to be possible. So I feel like it's sort of like a four minute mile scenario. But I don't know if I'm trying to transcend the mental health system or transcend death or transcend, I don't know, I don't get it. I didn't realize that self-dialogue would lead me right back to where I started when I decided not to face myself. I'm wondering if that means I won't have to teleport and have such a quantum brain if I can actually face what it is I need to. That I won't need to be flying all over the place and my body getting all messed up and whatever. It almost feels like this in-between realm, in-between life and death. Figuring out, what did I come here to do again? I've been told, I've been reminded, I've been poked, I've been prodded. What am I here to do? 
We need to create a different game. A game of unconditional love and support, celebration, connection, bringing out the best in each other just by looking at the other. So I'm back home now because it was too cold and rainy outside. But, um, and then here it's too noisy. It's been raining for the last couple of days and it's been a bit warmer. So all the snow that was sticking around because it was cold is starting to melt. And I'm really noticing that significantly louder from the traffic and I was thinking about how it's interesting that I was seriously going crazy from the noise and I thought I don't think I can live here one more day and this was maybe a month and a half ago or something and then when I was at my wits end it started snowing and then it snowed some more, and then it snowed some more, and then it got cold, so it didn't melt. And it's been actually quite quiet for a month or so because of that. And it's never snowed here that much. And I'm just thinking about how when I was first in Mania, I thought I could control the weather. I thought when I went outside, the sun came out because I wanted it to. And it seemed like it was true in those moments, but what I'm trying to say with this is I couldn't imagine how the noise was gonna go away, but then there was this extreme weather here and it was very quiet. So it feels like the universe intervened, even though it wasn't necessarily specifically because of me It still did intervene and help me out. And I'm really noticing now just because it's a lot noisier. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, now I don't know if I can really be here. It could be good as well though, just to remind me that that's one of the reasons why I'm going to California for a while is to get away from the noise. And then maybe there I can think straight. I was talking to somebody about Bell Let's Talk Day. It's a day in Canada where Bell gives money for the tweets people send to mental health organizations. And somebody was telling me that Bell Let's Talk was the top hashtag for 2016 on Twitter. I don't know if that was for Canada or for everything or what, but I'd have to double check that. But I was thinking about that hashtag in terms of Let's Talk. Let's Talk was the top hashtag we're not talking 
So we don't talk, we don't talk, we don't talk. We can't say what's on our mind. We can't say, we can't be individuals. We can't just have open dialogue and communication. And then people get so isolated that then they have to talk about having some kind of mental health challenge or mental health concern or mental illness or anxiety. It could be that we need to talk, not just talk about mental illness, but actually talk and, and look each other in the eyes and actually communicate. I think, I feel like all of this is just this huge communication problem and it arises in the physical world as all these different physical manifestations of not communicating, whether it be anything, think about anything. It's like, well, something, there was a miscommunication there, basically. So why are we having so many miscommunications? Why can't we communicate? Why are children being born and then becoming autistic and not being able to communicate? And when I was driving back home, I was thinking about how vaccines and a lot of different things actually induce autoimmune conditions. So they make it so our own immune system doesn't recognize our own cells. So we're attacking ourselves at a cellular level. And I was thinking about if we're attacking ourselves at a cellular level, then on the cellular level, our cells are afraid. They're being attacked. And so if every single cell in our body practically is afraid, symbolically at least in terms of it's being attacked, the body feels like it's being attacked. And then that fear is in the body. Maybe that's partly what produces cortisol and stress is that the cells are actually feeling like they're being attacked. The immune system isn't being used for what it needs to be used, which is putting the energy into, which is putting the energy into attacking foreign invaders. And I was just thinking about how when there's a foreign invader, foreign antigen, and the immune system's healthy, it'll make an antibody against that antigen. And so that antibody the genetics for that is encoded in the actual cell of the immune cell and then the antibodies on the outside. So now, in a way, that foreign invader, that foreign antigen has become us. So by attacking something that is other than us, it actually becomes us. And we create the us version of the thing that was not us. And in that way become stronger. But with this autoimmune stuff, we're actually attacking our own antigens maybe an attempt to make them us again or it's just really confused so what i'm trying to say is that if that's what's going on it's an oversimplification but if that's going on at a cellular level and that trickles all the way up it's going to be what is going on in our body which is going to translate to what's going on in our minds and if our body is being attacked and we're not even sensing it, we're just ignoring it because we're attacking ourselves, it makes sense that in our own heads we're attacking ourselves with our own thoughts and then we're attacking other people. So I feel almost like this whole thing is 
designed or whatever to keep us separate and to keep us attacking ourselves and attacking other people and actually not seeing other people as ourselves in a way other people could actually act as our antibodies and what I mean is that if we sense something in them that we want to attack or we don't like we need to actually make that part of ourselves and that reminds me of Debbie Ford's book The Dark Side of the Light Chasers where we have to reclaim our shadow and how everything that we see is a projection of ourselves so if we are seeing something we don't like in someone else it's a disowned part of ourselves, and we need to reclaim it and that's one of the ways we actually are able to become less and less judgmental when we realize that there's something that we're not allowing ourselves to be etc etc well that's a different level of things I just made that up but another body can be an antibody meaning make that body part of ourselves find something in them to make part of ourselves and the other side of that is looking for similarities that person has another body they're another human being they deserve to be here just as much as we do and the trouble is we're not really respecting ourselves in our head so how are we going to go around respecting other people and that's what i mean is that on a cellular level we've been turned into attacking ourselves and then when we feel like we're under attack from the very smallest cell then when we feel like we're under attack on a cellular on a cellular level we're gonna feel like we're under attack as a whole and then we're gonna feel like we need to be on defense and we need to go on the offense and we always need to we need to be offensive we need to be defensive we need to offend people and then defend ourselves and be opinionated and also when the body's being attacked on a cellular level by ourselves, we feel fearful and when we feel fearful we see the world as a fearful place and we're looking for fear we're looking for things to be afraid of we are afraid of things and we don't know why and we feel this disconnection from ourselves and other people and so we don't feel safe and since all of us are doing this we're not contributing to the opposite which is connection which is the inner human dimensions that unite us all and these are the things that we can gesture into existence imagine if we saw each other as all friends even if we weren't friends yet we just each human being we saw as a friend and the details aren't important but might come out later if we start as friends and establish some form of communication based on being each other's immunity in a way building each other's immunity building each other's immunity to all of this stuff in the world that is making us feel like we're separate and divided from each other 
and then we don't communicate and we don't communicate and we're not friends and we're not connected and we're isolated and then when we finally do reconnect it's over some kind of dysfunction or illness or disease people get together because they all had cancer people get together because they all have mental illness so then we create these tribes of people based on the illnesses that resulted from us just not being one human family in the first place and dividing ourselves through professions and through through the wise and through the ignorant and the old and the young and we just were so divided that we create these ailments and then and in a way the ailments are like the last resort of our body and consciousness to get us to reconnect somehow so even with the placebo effect somebody has some kind of condition or problem or concern and they see a study where they can get some kind of treatment and then they heal well it was an excuse to connect over something common meaning a person had an ailment and this other person had the the treatment for the ailment supposedly and then the person heals well aren't we each not treatments for each other's ailments without having to have anything in particular just by the human dimensions these are the things that unite us and keep us strong and it's not just an airy-fairy notion when we're connected in this way through kindness and compassion when we are kind and compassionate even if somebody else isn't that way to us we get oxytocin which is very protective of health because if we have cortisol that's destroying our health and we have dopamine and that's destroying our brain but oxytocin is actually released from the posterior but oxytocin is actually released from the posterior pituitary in the brain to the body and there's oxytocin in other areas of the body such as the ovaries, testes, thymus which is immunity so that has a lot to do with immunity so if there's oxytocin in the thymus it means it has something to do with immunity it's also in the retina and I actually feel that is directly related to be able to perceive love project love from the eyes from the light of the eyes and when you're projecting it from the light of the eyes you have the oxytocin in your eyes the light coming out of your eyes is actually healing and can actually initiate oxytocin in the other when you make eye contact because it's actually released from the posterior pituitary through electrical impulses in the brain so it's not like it's released because of this chemical cascade it's actually released because of neurological impulses and well they don't really elaborate at least on wiki on what those are but to me you have to be able to see with oxytocin to be able to get those neurons in the brain and glial cells to get the oxytocin released in the body you know when you see kindness you know when you act kind and then you feel that that warm and fuzzy feeling you know that fuzzy feeling after you just had a good laugh because you saw and perceived and heard something all together it's contagious 
Oxytocin and love is contagious, but we make it within ourselves. But we can create that positive social contagion based on kindness and love without judgment. And then we actually strengthen ourselves by doing that. So the only real strength is in being the immune system for somebody else, for being a body and being kind to somebody else and seeing them and looking at them without judgment. And when you do that, you actually heal yourself and you heal the other person. The light from your eyes. And I feel like part of the damage being done by certain chemicals in the environment and different things and foods and, and vaccines is that it's messing with oxytocin. I almost feel like if the body is constantly attacking itself somewhere in some kind of autoimmune thing, it's, it's autoimmune, it's inflammation, it, there's cortisol, there's all this stuff happening, it's like, it's degenerating, it's more difficult for the oxytocin to come in because if we're always so afraid we're not looking for love we're less apt to perceive it if somebody is in pain and their body's falling apart due to some autoimmune disease they're likely not walking through a forest thinking wow this is the most beautiful place i'm in heaven on earth if the body's being destroyed it's very hard for us to be able to do that so i'm seeing more that there's something about this oxytocin versus cortisol dopamine thing going on and and inflammation and autoimmunity to keep us separate and then we come back together when our bodies fall apart in order to have medical intervention and it seems like medicalizing the birth process giving vaccines to pregnant women making pregnancy some medical phenomenon, doing so many C-sections, which prevents the release of oxytocin, which helps to bond the mom and the infant. I actually feel like it's a war on oxytocin. It's a war on that molecule that bonds us together, bonds the mother to the child. And even if we do bond, then a baby's vaccinated or something and then the child can't bond to the mother because all this and it's and I've read in autism there's something wrong with the oxytocin system so to me it's more about connection and communication and all these things that are ruining that Society's designed with chemicals, with things that aren't natural, with so many things, with medicalized, with authority, with all this stuff, and we're not thinking for ourselves, and we just smile and nod, and then we get some kind of ailment. We're not seeing what we're doing. We don't understand the body. We don't understand ourselves. The only way to fight back is to be kind, is to kill him with kindness and 
killing them, whoever them is, there's no them. It's all us. It's all symbolic of us not understanding ourselves, each other, communication, how our bodies work, how our brains work, we don't understand. And then we give that understanding over to the scientists. And science has been turned against us. But again, there's nobody really doing it. There's nobody doing any of it. It's the prevailing level of consciousness that manifests as people doing those things, but there's nobody really doing it. It's just a phenomenon in consciousness. We just hear about it as a story. But other than hearing that story, we don't really have proof that that happened. world is just a bunch of noise that we ascribe meaning to. And then when we hear certain noises, and then we ascribe meaning to it, like, oh, that's something I should be afraid of. And we take on that fear, which just makes us further able to see more fearful noise might just be a matter of ignoring it and be like, that's just noise. It seems like we'll be creating so much chaos that the financial burden of taking care of people will be so extreme that the whole concept of a financial system will lose any meaning whatsoever because if there's so much cost associated with all of this care needed to take care of people, and maybe there's not even the people who can take care of these people, then those other people take over and the world actually has to be created based on them, which who knows what that looks like. But we need to switch to a currency of love and kindness and doing what we can where we are. So the hypothalamus, it has these oxytocin cells that create the action potential that go down to the pituitary. And I feel like, and I remember reading in Dr. Daniel Siegel's work that the hypothalamus gets damaged when somebody's traumatized. And when it's damaged, then it's hard to sort out memories and perceptions and have a sense of ecphory, etc. And I feel like if the hypothalamus is damaged in that way, that it's pretty hard for somebody to have the oxytocin cells activated. So again, the more trauma there is, I actually feel like that's when somebody needs those oxytocin cells activated by caring. And then the oxytocin gets released into the blood and heals the body. So the perception of somebody caring is the most healing.
the understanding of the intention to care, to be kind, to be patient. to value somebody as a human being. So perception is required for oxytocin release. Perception of something that isn't material. It might involve something material like a person, but it's the immaterial gesture or the gesture, the intention, the meaning of the material gesture, but the intention is immaterial. The meaning is immaterial. It's in our mind. And that meaning is what actually does something. The perception of that meaning. And we can always tell, even if we can't consciously tell. And that's why I feel like we're killing each other with our thoughts, feelings, and actions. Because those thoughts and feelings and actions are gestures that the other person can read, even if it's not consciously because we can't read everything consciously it's way too much information so looking for things that unite us and bond us looking for similarities looking for love looking for that immaterial thing perceiving it is what is getting it looking in that way approaching life in that way is what gives us that because we are that. So if we're perceiving in a different way, in a judgmental way, every moment is judgment moment. And we're only judging ourselves and we're creating ourselves based on what we're judging. Instead of using another person to be our immunity to judgment by seeing something we might judge and seeing how that could be something that could happen to us or we might do or we might be and these are the things we need to start talking about in order to resolve some of our shame and connect based on that kind of vulnerability versus waiting to connect because somebody has cancer or something and in that talk by Dion Vimal about the law of miracle he said I'm gonna deal with this it's not going to deal with me and he talked about how usually we're trying to maintain an image of ourselves so we design our life around maintaining an image and I think that my mental health diagnosis has helped me maintain an image but I'm being provoked by the universe to break that image and deal with other things. The whole mental illness thing is still part of it because I feel like people like me who have been diagnosed have a lot of power within them to take action to heal the world of some of the things that they've probably been through or or witnessed or or maybe would want to participate in changing based on what they've been through, even though it's not directly related. And 
and I was watching the Primacy of Consciousness lecture again by Peter Russell. And he talks about how Planck's constant is a unit of action. And love is action. And that unit of action of Planck's constant can actually start action potentials and all of that starts in the retina. So again, perceiving with oxytocin, we're seeing different light. We're making oxytocin salient. We're making connection and meaning and seeing relationships. And this could be And this could be the biggest thing that's important in the whole hyper-learning and neuroplasticity is being able to see in this way, seeing connection, seeing relatedness, not just seeing the me and division and dividing ourselves from each other. If we could actually all see in this way, we would be talking about different things. The world would be based on different conversations. We're talking about the wrong things. We end up talking about mental illness because we don't know how to see with the eyes of love. We don't have oxytocin in our eyes, which is helping to select the right light to give the right action on our retinas, to give the right action potentials in our brain, to allow the right brain cells to be activated and grow and continue to grow and make new connections and be pliable. And seeing in that way, creates oxytocin in the body and love is wisdom and that wisdom is what keeps the body strong. Nature selects for wisdom. And I feel like one day Nature will select for wise humans, and it'll know. And all of a sudden there'll just be way less people on the planet, and they'll be a lot wiser. And there'll still be another planet full of the people that aren't as wise. I've already had a sense of that when the world splits. And who knows if it's true, and even if it is or isn't, none of us will know the difference. And it's probably already happened. We are all living in different worlds. It's a matter of now you see it, now you don't. We need to get with the love program. I just read an article by Tom Wooten talking about pro-meds or anti-meds and stuff like that and he says he's never really taken a position on it that he'd rather have bipolar in order with meds than bipolar disorder and I've been back and forth about pro-meds or no meds or whatever and I currently take meds 
and I'm pretty much okay with that, though I do somewhat aspire to not need them. But if I feel like my issue in life is that I have bipolar disorder, I'm always going to need meds. Whereas if I take meds knowing that there's some other issue I want to work on, I feel like the process of bipolar has tried to connect me with my cause and my altruism. And part of my trouble is that I haven't connected with that. So bipolar shows us the power of our brain, connects us with what we're here to do in a way, and I connected with homelessness and women's issues. And then the energy wore out and then I was perceived as having mental illness. So my passion and my altruism put me in a place where I was perceived as having a mental illness. So my personal problem with some of the issues in the world and wanting to do something about it was turned into my personal problem with a mental illness. So what I'm trying to say is I feel like it's possible that a lot of us who go through the bipolar process connect with our altruism, connect with our mission and what we're here to do. We get that download, we get that vision. And part of the trouble is we actually need to work together on that, not just work together on our bipolar disorder. So I would say bipolar in order for what? Not just to have bipolar in order. Not just to have bipolar in order to appease society. We were attempting to get in contact with our creatively maladjusted brains. And then we were labeled as mentally ill in order to fit back into the slots of society, slotted into having a mental illness. So I agree that it's fine to take meds and I'm seeing that in a way they're good modulators of consciousness, especially when you can find ones that do work to slow things down in terms of realizing that we actually have powerful gifted brains and we need to take poisons in order to slow them down to the rate of perception of the consensus. So it's great to be able to learn how to manage the intensity of things and part of the intensity is seeing the intensity of the world. We can see and feel the intensity of the world. It's not just, ab it's not just about us feeling intense. There are intense things out there and we're feeling them whether far or near, past, present or future because all time is now. It's a quantum hologram. And our brains process in that way. They don't process based on me and my little ego and thinking about this and that and what I want for dinner. No, they're thinking in much larger and vaster ways. And we need to talk to each other about these things in different ways, not just about our mental illnesses. So again, it's not just about let's talk, it's let's talk about what. Not just managing our own lives, but how are we going to create a better world and the medication gives us time enough to try and figure out how to do that if there's any gift in the medication from society it's thanks for slowing me down so I can figure out a way for you guys to catch up to us 
Not that something's wrong with us in society. It's the other way around. They just don't see that. We're doing them a favor by letting them poison us in this way. So if we can manage to slow our perceptions, to smile and nod, then that's a good thing. But in the meantime, we have to figure out how to create a world where people don't have to have this form of distress. You know, if you, if you talk to anybody who has a mental illness diagnosis, and you really talk to them, you'll probably find out that they've been through some pretty traumatic stuff. So is it really a mental illness or is it being traumatized by society? And the thing is the oxytocin and the love and the connection and those biochemicals, since we get so traumatized in our body as a last resort, those things get released for us to perceive the world and be in the world and move through the world as if it's so loving and wonderful in order to save us from ending our lives and seeing also what's possible so then when we do come back down to the resonance of society we can help everyone move into what's possible if we have love in our hearts it's about sharing what we saw and the vision that we had and that anybody can see that way and be that way So it could be bipolar in order to be loved, be loving, be kind. And again, I've said kill them with kindness. If we as bipolars can be so kind to normal people, that would break the stigma. And it could actually be our job to heal them. They think they're trying to heal us. We might be here to heal them because we have seen that other world that is here now that they can't see and experience that we have to stay at this level in order to keep the world unfolding at the slow pace that it is people being able to see with love in their hearts would unfold a different world we're actually here to teach other people how to see maybe we need to learn how to have bipolar in order but other people need to learn how to see So this whole bipolar and order thing could be great to be able to really be with all those intensities and things, but it's not the root cause resolution. Only if it's bipolar in order to show normal people a different order, a world based on the order of love. And it's even harder for us because we're so perceptive that we can see what other people are feeling and thinking and it doesn't feel good. How can we transmute that? And the even more traumatized and sensitive beings, the homeless people are completely crippled. They can't even practice being in order at all because they're just stuck. They're crippled by all of this. And by being crippled by all of this pain in the world, they symbolize humanity waiting for that unconditional love to come and resolve that pain. It's not like we don't have the manpower and resources to do that. We just don't have the vision and we don't have the hearts. 
So again, I feel like bipolar is not a problem. It's a solution for humanity. It's about learning how to see. And it's not just about acting in order of society and based on society's rules because those fake rules, those false structures, those structures of the mind are the things that are driving us nuts. Those are not the innate wavelengths of the heart. It's not the spectrum of light that the heart sees. When the heart is seeing and oxytocin infuses our retinas, we see a different world. But when it beats in fear and we're releasing cortisol and we're thinking dopamine thoughts to try and give ourselves pleasure in order to appease ourselves, we can't really see. Oxytocin blocks fear and anxiety. And we're all living in fear and anxiety, meaning we don't have oxytocin. We're not feeling connected. And if we have the oxytocin and we don't have fear and anxiety, we can see a different world. And when we can see a different world, we can unfold a different world. We need these meds because we don't have oxytocin. We are, we're full of stress, we're full of fear, anxiety, and then we're given these poisons to try to make that go away. And people who go into manic consciousness, they get so much oxytocin. And I read in the oxytocin article on Wiki is that when somebody has oxytocin, if they're given oxytocin, they're very hypersensitive to social stimuli and it increases the approach avoidance reflex. So one will approach appropriate stimuli and also avoid more so. So one might actually seem more reactive might actually seem a little bit more unstable because they approach things kind of like, oh wow, and then if something happens, they're, they're gone. Because they can sense it. To me, that seems like pattern recognition. It's a bodily reaction. So with oxytocin, in the body we're strong and our nervous system actually fully responds to the moment and knows what to do. So that seems like a bad thing in a way, but it's actually being more perceptive, more sensitive, and more protected. So love, being connected, is actually protective because one knows when to get out of dodge. And it even said that a person with the extra oxytocin will react to previously fearful stimuli more strongly. So I had a terrible situation and then I had all this oxytocin and manic consciousness at a later point and since then I'm very sensitive to certain situations where I walked into the back of a tattoo shop with somebody and I just was immediately like get me out of here like I this feels like a possible rape and torture scenario and I was so terrified and it wasn't logical but it was sort of a protection like okay I'm not gonna spend another second in this room and not that anything was going to happen or would have happened or, or has ever happened in that room but me as a woman read that situation as get out of here so it becomes protective when you can read the positive social you can actually read the patterns of negativity 
But what I see this as too, is that somebody who goes into manic consciousness, it has something to do with oxytocin. Oxytocin, oxytocin, lovely things happening, synchronicity, following the social cues and the social contagion and wonderfulness. But then, eventually, we're going to run into things that are not good. And the whole being will react to it. And then when we start reacting based on fear, well, now we start going down into, in my case, psychosis. Every, lots of people have different cycles of how it happens. What I'm saying is the oxytocin as love is protective. It can also, in a way, turn to fear, but it's not really fear. It's actually the intelligence of self-protection. Protecting the body from the social situations that aren't good because it would be It would be a ridiculous notion to think that one is infinitely safe In a way maybe the oxytocin can protect us from those who would wish to do us harm Oxytocin also increases generosity now society wouldn't want that wouldn't want people going around being kind and generous to each other, that would just be awful. So in a way, it increases selflessness. We're not thinking so much about ourselves. And then when we're generous, we actually get more oxytocin and it reinforces that. And there are studies that say people feel better about buying things for other people than themselves. I feel the meds really work by poisoning our vision. And that's the thing too with oxytocin. If we have that love vision, and we're in manic consciousness, we're not just seeing that way for ourselves. So we might see a fearful situation for ourselves and, and retract, but we're also reading the pattern of society. And so the oxytocin, the love in manic consciousness, it wears out in part because we get crushed by our own perceptions. So being hyper-perceptive and seeing the positive social cues we're also seeing the negative you can't not see it and then it eventually crushes us and then we retreat in fear and with this oxytocin consciousness and this oxytocin vision we actually become afraid of the world and afraid of society because it is a fearful and traumatic place it's based on different principles than the ones that we get connected with when we go into map consciousness, manic consciousness, perceiving holistically in this way. And so in a way we're a hypersensitive neurotribe and society's not designed for us. So part of being bipolar in order or anything would be knowing that we're hyper perceptive, that we can see things we don't even know we're seeing. So if we're reacting to something we don't know why, we don't even know what we're reacting to. We don't know why. So we actually, I've said before, are sort of like the thermometers of society. If you take a person with bipolar consciousness and plop them in a situation and they start running, you know, it's not good. Even if it looks completely harmless. 
and I feel that that's what's going on for some of the autistic children too. There's things in the environment that we're not aware of that are traumatic, but are. They're not part of our design as humanity. Just like Temple Grandin walked through the cattle processing plants and could see all these things that were freaking the cattle out and then made it so they could be led to slaughter. In a way, I feel like people who don't see all the things that bipolar people see don't realize that they're being led to slaughter. And then I went back to the Dopamine Wiki article again because it's very fascinating. And I said in an earlier video that it seems like dopamine is just in the brain, but I read further in the article and it is outside of the central nervous system. And it says... I just got a phone call, but I was looking, I was reading this thing on wiki about dopamine and it said that outside the central nervous system, dopamine functions primarily as a local chemical messenger. In blood vessels, it inhibits norepinephrine release and acts as a vasodilator. In the kidneys, it increases sodium excretion and urine output. In the pancreas, it reduces insulin production. In the digestive system, it reduces gastrointestinal motility and it protects the intestinal mucosa. And in the immune system, it reduces the activity of lymphocytes, which are immune cells. And pretty much all of those functions are crappy functions. You don't want to have your intestinal motility decreased. It means when you have so much dopamine that you're food can't pass through your digestive system properly, perhaps. And in the immune system, it reduces the activity of lymphocytes, which is our immune system. So again, we might be getting some kind of pleasure reward, but we're messing up our digestion and messing up our immune system and dehydrating ourselves and producing less insulin. So this dopamine stuff is really bad. yet we're so dependent on it. And when Dr. David Hawkins says, surrender the juice that you get from taking a positionality, which is the pleasure of having a certain opinion or judgment or perspective, which is the pleasure of dividing ourselves from something else and then seeing ourselves as better or judging someone else to bring ourselves up we actually destroy ourselves. So the juice is what destroys us, and if we surrender that, that is the eyes of non-judgment, of unconditional love. I also came across this article on neurosciencenews.com, and it was a tweet by Stephen Kotler, and the article is called, Our Senses Can't Learn Under Stress. And it relates to a lot of this stuff I've been talking about. And they discovered that, it says, In previous studies on a cellular level, neuroscientists have demonstrated that cortisol suppresses the strengthening of synaptic connections 
and therefore the plasticity of the brain, its ability to learn. So the brain can't learn when it's stressed, when it's in fear, when it's in anxiety. And when it's in fear and anxiety, it's probably trying to find some way to fix that by some kind of pleasure seeking, but that's not going to fix the fear and anxiety. It's only going to relieve it temporarily. So we get stuck in this trying to relieve stress and anxiety reflex instead of being able to learn. And when we can learn, we can actually move towards creating a life where there is no stress and anxiety, but it's hard to get out of that loop. And it says they give corticosteroids for treatments for a lot of different things, but it affects learning. So it might actually be counterindicated for rehabilitation. And so often when we have inflammation of something, we end up needing corticosteroids to get rid of the inflammation. So in a way, cortisol is there partly to fix this inflammation problem. And the inflammation is is a lot of times autoimmunity and not having the right diet and allergens and things like that. It's the immune system, it can't work properly well. Dopamine partly suppresses the immune system. So by seeking pleasure, we're not actually paying attention to what our body needs in the moment. A lot of the pleasure seeking is moving us away from being in touch with our body. If we were in touch with our body, we wouldn't be seeking pleasure. We would be in our body and acting and learning. We wouldn't be looking for something somewhere else. We would be right here now. When we're looking for something somewhere else, we can't look at this moment now. We can't look as this moment now. When we're stressed, we're not relaxed and we're trying to get away from this moment or find something that will make this moment okay. And then when that wears off, we gotta find the next thing that makes this moment okay. And then next, and then our immune system suppressed. Then we have some kind of physical illness. And that's one of the ways, it's one of the only ways that we actually start to learn to be in touch with our body again and learn about our body is when we get some kind of physical ailment. Us getting a physical ailment might actually be our invitation to live in our body again. It says, the stress hormone cortisol completely blocks our important ability to improve our perceptual performance. So stress, cortisol blocks perception. If we can't perceive, we can't learn. And I've talked a lot about this, about seeing the light, selecting for the right light, the right part of the human dimension spectrum is going to determine what we unfold as our life. Are we going to be pleasure-seeking robots or something else? I was curious, so I looked up what drugs have similar structure to dopamine. I'm kind of shocking, but not surprising. The answer is amphetamines. So basically the things in society that give us reward and punishment is like taking a hit of amphetamines. And I was thinking about how kids with ADHD 
are put on Ritalin, which is an amphetamine. And in a way, it's like ADHD is a brain state where one is looking around with perceptual vision, when one is interested and curious about the world and, and can't really be programmed. And the programming is related to dopamine, reward and punishment. These kids don't go based on reward and punishment, they go based on their own desire to learn and explore things, and, and they're quite energetic. They're probably super intelligent, and then they're put on these amphetamines, which it could be that the dopamine circuits in children aren't yet developed. So that's why they actually have a different effect on children than adults, the amphetamines. But in a way, I feel like it's making it so the kid can develop dopamine circuits and just be programmed like everyone else and numb them out from their wonderful enthusiasm. And I don't know much about ADHD. It just seems interesting that there's so much around getting people to be dopamine dominant so they can be programmed so they behave in the same sort of way. Stimulus response, reward, punishment, fear, 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 fear. Goals, goals, success, success. And it's all gonna happen some other day in the future. So if our brains are dopamine wired, we can be controlled like Pavlov's dog. I was watching this video called Consciousness Mechanics, and at the end, I just saw there was a question about what is reality made of? And immediately my mind came up with the answer. It said, love. And if we don't have that love, if we aren't that love, then we ask what reality is made of. And if we know how to just make love, if we know how to make love and not war, then we would see that love moves all, and love is the only movement. Just as water flows down a river and then goes over the edge of a waterfall, we might look at it and say, well, that is just violent, but it's all the same water. So yeah, we have to act in order because we're not acting on what's distressing us and we need medication suppressing us. It's all about learning to love. Learning is love. If we can't learn, we can't love. Vision is love, not the eyesight blocked by judgment. Dr. Peter Russell talked about the principle of least action and that a quantum of action is Planck's constant and that's a photon of light and it always wants to go towards least action. It's one of the laws of physics. 
And to me, when we think about a photon of light and about what I've been talking about, perception, I feel like if we have love in our eyes, if we have oxytocin in our eyes, we perceive love and that is least action. And one way it could be least action is that if we're perceiving the highest, if we're perceiving with unconditional love, we'll be moved to take a different action than if we're perceiving based on fear or anger. And whatever the action of love is, of seeing that love is going to produce different gestures and different behaviors, different energy, different action than if we're perceiving at the level of consciousness of anger. Another way it could be least action is that if we're looking with unconditional love, we're relaxed. Our bodies aren't tense. They don't have cortisol rushing through it. And then they're not seeking to make mental images in order to find the mental image that corresponds to the thing that might appease the body and make it less stress. That's a big waste of energy. It's making the body do something to please itself as opposed to seeing and acting one with the universe. And if we're acting with the universe and the law of love, that is going to be least action compared to wandering off on some other track it's going to take a lot of effort. If we don't perceive and act based on the law of least action, the law of love, then there's some kind of action in our physiology that has to make up for the fact that we didn't see it. It's got to reorient itself somehow. So over time that accumulates in the body and then we get to a point where we're very distressed and it's coming out of our body and coming into our mind, all these things that we didn't deal with. We thought that we did, but really we just escaped temporarily. And if that doesn't happen in, in terms of some kind of psychological distress, well then it happens in terms of physiological distress and maybe some kind of illness in which there is psychological distress because then one's worried about dying when all the way along one was barely living. One wasn't living and perceiving in the present moment and that is inaction. So stress and distress psychologically and physiologically is inaction, which is not actually seeing with the full light of a loving eye in oxytocin consciousness. And then it came to mind that it could have something to do with synchronicity. To synchronize, to have synchronize, eyes that synchronize. Synchronize with this other, synchronize with this light. And when we have those eyes of love, we're guided by that. We're not guided by our thought structures. And when we're guided by that, moment to moment, we're in synchronicity and we're in mania. Because clear perception like that, perception of love and as love, 
the universe gives us social clues to move us towards that which towards that place that we could be living which is a beautiful place but it's difficult to stay there and then if one does when one snaps back one appears to be going crazy So when one has the eyes of love, of oxytocin, of the peripheral vision, it's almost like it floods the eyes and creates a matrix of vision as opposed to a pinhole of dopamine. Then one can follow the signs. Just like we follow road signs. or Google Maps, when we have oxytocin eyes, we follow the universal map to a different place. It's a different level of consciousness when one follows that stream for a certain apparent amount of time. Part of the trouble is that once one goes there, it's hard to look at this place again. This place that we all share. And if a unit of action is a photon, Well, what is the quality of the light coming out of our eyes and what action does that have? Just with how we look at things. I wonder if there could be a plague of love, learning, and intelligence. Can we create that positive social contagion? I feel like only caring in people can turn off the cortisol switch, can turn off the fear. We usually shorten this interaction by giving some kind of medical procedure. But if we all had time for each other, then we likely wouldn't need all that. Can we uplift each other? Can we see the highest in each other? Thank you for listening to Bipolar Inquiry. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember, use your voice, craft your consciousness, embody your potential, enter a quantum paradigm. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information in this show is not medical advice. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.